Hello, hello, and a very warm welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, your home for stock market news and ideas to help you achieve long-term financial freedom by getting you investing in the stock market for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva. And a very warm welcome to season five. This is episode one. We've had a little break for a month and I'm very excited to be back and of course back in the drama of the soap opera that is the stock markets and there's certainly lots to talk about today. We're going to start off by having a little look at what's been going on in the different asset classes, these different sort of buckets of financial instruments in which we can invest. We're also going to hear what a really well-respected fund manager thinks you should do when markets are rocking around like this. We're going to get an update on what global markets have been up to and of course some company news as well before a really good interview with AJ Bell's head of personal finance Laura Souter to hit the nail on the head and and discuss this cost of living crisis. Now before all of that we've got some new blogs up as well on stepstoinvesting.com don't forget to check those out one of them offers some tips around dealing with volatile markets we've got 10 tips there plus there's a really interesting blog as well from Aberdeen as well where they are discussing some of the opportunities that you might be able to find in Asian markets so good stuff there please go and check it out and sign up if you haven't already. All right, I thought I'd start with a little report from Coolstone, who have been looking at flows, so where money is sort of uh, put into different asset classes and funds around the world. So it sort of gives you a good idea of, of some thinking behind, you know, where investors are seeing value and where investors are sort of seeing a bit of risk and kind of avoiding. Um, and, you know, the report was looking over, it actually looked over a number of years and and then we've also sort of been looking at this period of, of this year up to the end of May. And yeah, it's pretty dire for markets, really. I mean, the, I'm going to explain it a bit more in the market section, but basically high inflation, which is is, is causing a central bank response, response of, of, of raising interest rates very fast in order to cool it off, is threatening to send economies into economic recessions. Um, so what that does is just drive a bit of a, a bit of a bear market so as we would call it so quite a dour mood amongst investors a bit of risk off type behavior um, a bit of caution um, because because recessions mean that that company profits can be affected so for bonds it's not so great so we're sort of looking at these different sort of asset class buckets and, and if you're thinking about bonds then you know it's been a pretty dire first half for bonds. Bonds do not like a rising rate environment because they have this kind of fixed payment. That's actually why the asset class is also called fixed income. They have this fixed payment that they that they pay out a coupon. And uh, as interest rates rise, that becomes less and less attractive. So they tend to get really hammered at the beginning of a, of a kind of rising interest rate environment. So unsurprisingly, that's been a pretty bad one. For shares, what investors are doing, you know, it's a, it's a much bigger market. And what they're doing is they're looking for kind of defensive parts of the 
of uh, the economy, defensive companies, as as you would call it. So, so companies that can sort of resist some of the, some of that uh, that swing downwards in 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 the economy, and it means switching out of riskier stuff. So it's why we've seen. Um, you know, big sell-offs in areas like smaller companies, which are generally, you know, um, much more exposed to downturns. Tech as well, and that means the U.S. in general just hasn't been hasn't been um, doing very well. And it's it's because these kind of companies, you know, tend to have a lot more of a promise of profits into the future. And um, uh, so, you know, that means that th those that future money becomes less attractive. What you want is money today. And we sort of discussed that a bit on the pod. So it means that investors switching out of that kind of stuff and then they're, they're moving their focus towards the less risky stuff and companies that we might describe as quality companies, you know, with strong earnings today lots of cash coming through today because this is what we wanted today and then and then some pricing power as well so that's that's the ability if if your costs are going up because of inflation you can then pass on those cost rises to your your end consumers by raising your prices and it, and it won't affect your business too much that means you've got power over the prices that you kind of set so those kind of companies are quite popular also any any groups in sort of energy and mining has done quite well because these have been the direct beneficiaries of where some of that inflation has come from so these sky high prices in commodities so they've done quite well as well um, but of course, you know, as I mentioned, you know, some, you know, some of that tech, a lot of that, a lot of these sort of growthy type companies that are that that make up a lot of the U.S. stock market, they've become very unpopular, as I said. So it's why the U.S. has had this just dire first half, and actually, the first half up to the end of June is the worst period of time for its stock market in fifty years, which is quite remarkable and it's it's partly because because of that those types of companies have been so popular for so long a lot of their the gains in the world over the past decade have sort of been have been focused in the us so they're sort of unfortunately paying for it a bit now it also means that what's been quite popular if you're looking around for funds is income funds so so equity income funds or or funds that pay income from shares and that's because they're generally the, those those types of strategies generally go for companies that are mature that have got pretty solid balance sheets you know good quality and they're paying out lots of cash today because of course that's how they're able to pay good dividends and 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 that's what the strategy is going after it wants income so it's looking for these companies that can pay strong dividends so those types of, of funds across quite a lot of categories whether it's global or uk or whatever it is they've actually done they've done really well which totally makes sense i think as well also doing quite well has been esg funds so those are their strategies that are investing in companies with strong environmental social and governance credentials uh, they've done pretty well and it's not so much to do with this kind of trying to find less risky forms of, of equities in the, in this kind of uh, bit of a downturn it this is more about the fact that this category is has you know for the past two years been going through really strong growth as more and more investors want to in, you know do well by doing good and, and, and invest with that kind of socially conscious mindset etc so um, it's sort of going through this long-term kind of structural growth really as a category so that's it's it's, it's going to be driven probably for some years and and that's part of why this is this is done quite well 
Also, you know, generally quite popular with with UK investors is property as well. And, you know, this has been broadly good because uh, investors quite like the idea of, of having some income that's backed by, you know, a physical asset. And there's a sort of belief that tenants are, are generally going to weather recessions for as long as, as possible, really, because they don't really, you know, so they'll find ways of cutting costs elsewhere rather than having an enormous upheaval of of of, of having to move um, from a property as well. It's not Im- totally immune, though, really. And, you know, some parts of the market are much more sensitive to interest rate rises than other because others because of course if interest rate rates rise really high then it, it will just crimp demand for things like mortgages so so that tends to have a cooling effect on, on the property market finally i just thought i'd mention alternatives as well you know it's it's probably a good idea particularly in these kind of markets to have quite a nice diverse portfolio and, and maybe to go a bit beyond just your shares and your bonds which are, are, are the main categories um but you know and here some of the fortunes are a bit mixed i mean in the infrastructure um space it, what's been attractive there is you, you tend to have quite long contracts pretty stable income that are, that are that are written in a way that links them to inflationary measures so you know the the, the rents on that will go up um it, you know uh, um the payments on that will go up as inflation sort of goes up that's great probably a lot of that trade's already been though so you might you might not be uh, getting in at a terribly good point in that market but so you know some areas like that have done pretty well other areas you know have have done spectacularly badly because they you know the, you know alternatives are covers quite a lot you might get some really specialist strategies in there that maybe use really unusual financial instruments like derivatives with really sort of idiosyncratic characteristics that that can lead to sort of large losses if, if the bets are placed in the wrong way so it's been a bit of a mixed bag there next natural question it might be okay well you know we're sort of seeing some of those some investors sort of going for the the less risky stuff within shares or, or that kind of risk off. What about just selling out and you know moving all your stuff into cash and 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 really de-risking in that way? Well, I was sort of reading a, an interesting um, interview with David Coombs, who's, who's a very well respected multi-asset fund manager. So these 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 types of uh, fund managers, these investors will will take in cash and then and then build these big broad funds that will invest in all sorts of different types of assets, shares, bonds, alternatives. It's kind of a big one-stop shop type uh, fund. And he was speaking to Trustnet and what he was talking about was, well, what should you do when, when um, you know, when markets are looking a bit depressed and a bit volatile, should you sort of completely sell out? And he agreed, you know, it's sort of tempting to remove your money, but it will seriously damage your long-term returns. You need to be invested. And his quote was quite nice. He said, by investing in those depressed market valuations, so when when markets are really low, you build up a big tailwind for your long-term performance. You miss that and you're playing catch-up for the next five years. So it's absolutely vital that when the market turns, you turn with it. And... You know, and I think I can see that, you know, it, you know, when when the markets panic, what they do is they tend to oversell, which means investments can become real bargains. And whilst it sort of feels can counterintuitive, if you have the cash, you should really be putting more in at, at that point. You know, what's very normal is that markets go through cycles that there will be periods where they go down, where there's lots of gloom, lots of sort of media speculation about the end of days. But actually, 
they recover and they always have and economies recover and, and and this is all very normal really so if you invest at those really low points then then you've you've just picked up these bargains and it and it just means your longer term performance out of that can be can be really really phenomenal so um it and, and this is you know <laughs> in collectives as well in broad diversified investments as well the when it comes to individual things like individual shares then there's nuance there that, that adds a lot more risk so you know I'm, I'm i'm not necessarily advocating for that but i think in in big broad strategies it can be a it can be it can be a great a great time to um invest but of course you'll have to make that decision yourself okay let's get on to markets and as I as I sort of said, they've been pretty up and down, pretty topsy turvy. Uh, you know, starting with inflation, well, that's that's rising. It's continuing to rise. It's certainly turning up the heat on economies around the globe. Inflation figures were released for June, so having a look at prices in June versus where they were uh, a year before that. And in the US, they're nine point one percent higher, and in the UK, they are nine point four percent higher. So really uh, high levels of inflation there. What's driving this are supply chain log jams. Yeah, so we're still sort of getting over the, the, the COVID shutdowns, particularly in China. We kind of thought things were getting better there because a lot of their lockdowns had ended, but we're seeing rising numbers of COVID cases there. So we may see more, more lockdowns. So there's the log jams and supply chains, but and then also the war uh, in Ukraine as well, which is affecting a lot of commodities. It means that what the Fed is 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 uh, expected to do, well, it's been raising rates. What's expected to its next rate rise is to hike it by 0.75%. So the pace is sort of increasing in magnitude, and that's expected in its meeting next week. Could be even higher, it could be 1%. And then the Bank of England is expected to follow next month with a 0.5% hike as well. So we're just seeing some big chunky rises in interest rates. Um which you know finally they were sort of there's a lot of criticism around central banks that were sort of accused of being quite late to the party this this these increasing pace of hikes is 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 very much designed to send a, a clear message around inflation which part of it is driven by simple expectations of it so it, it's trying to get that message out there and say do you know what we're determined to put that inflation genie back in the bottle now, with the pace of these hikes increasing, it means investors have become a bit unnerved because very much by design, it sharply cools economies and and that raises the prospect of, of knocking them into economic recessions, uh, particularly later in the year. So markets don't like that because, of course, in a recessionary environment, profits and uh, you know company profits and growth can be affected and it can fall. And profits are a key key part of the equation in how investors value share so that the price that they think that they're kind of worth is very much dependent on its profits today and, and profits into the future and and what you think the present value of those profits are today so when it seems like profits are going to be hit companies become well they're assessed to become less valuable so stock markets will fall in the us we saw a reuters poll there that basically forecast a a um, you know amongst amongst investors and and and, and uh, the thinking was that there's a forty percent chance of a recession there over the next year, over the next two years it's that's that that likelihood of a recession rises to fifty percent. 
So it seems the risks are are quite high. And it means markets, yeah, as I say, are, are pretty volatile, a bit, of, a bit of all over the place, you know. There is a lot of that gloom already in the price. Remember, markets are, are forward-looking. But there's still a question over, you know, well, it, it makes it very hard to tell where they're going to go next. But, you know, what's going to happen as companies start to report what's happening with their profits? You know, is, is are those dour expectations, you know, are they going to, do well or not are they going to be affected and then you know how does that much match up against what's already in the price what analysts have sort of expected so you know we saw and it causes these big sort of big swings week in week out basically of markets during those sorts of times um so you know uh that's that might be something you know to be expected i mean i think a good example was probably like last week we saw some pretty negative results for some of the banks. JP Morgan's chief, Jamie Dimon, came out and sort of said, oh, everything, everything's going to be terrible and we saw some big falls. And then this week we've seen some much better profit announcements and and then beating what analysts expected. So it's been a really positive week for US markets this week. So just this this toing and froing, I think you're just going to need to expect it. Some of the savvy investors out there, they go, brilliant, you know, I'm just going to use those those points where it goes down to, to, to then add to positions as we sort of talked about before. The UK as well, it's been bouncing around a bit, you know, it did actually quite, I mean, relative to other markets, it did okay, because there's a lot of things that, that have actually, a lot of companies that have sort of performed a bit better in this environment, so things like those sort of companies that are exposed to commodities, um, you know, there's energy, there's mining companies, also other things, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of financials in there, and they can they can benefit with rising interest rates because that can be good for bank profits as, as they can start to charge more on, on products like their mortgages and stuff like that. So um, it, it did actually, you know, the UK market had sort of done okay, but it hasn't been so good more recently this week. The sort of these recessionary fears hits the demand for things like they, these commodities as energy and, and mining kind of um, areas as well. So they haven't done so well this week and it's sort of fallen a bit. Um, so even though we got a nice surprise about GDP growth, growth of the UK economy in May, um, and that was due to sort of increased holiday bookings actually was a big part of that. There's still, you know, a worry around confidence slipping amongst consumers really and and how they're gonna they're they're gonna be able to to buy things in in this in this nasty cost of, of living crisis really um so yeah totally mixed mixed bag figures for i'm going to give you for the month given that we've been away for a little while the FTSE 100 is up 0.91 percent to 7217 points the us's s&p 500 is up 4.68 percent to 3945 points japan's two nikkei 225 is up 6.32 percent to 27,800 and three points and Europe's stock 600 is up 2.87 percent to 420 points okay final section on companies just after chatting to some of the people the good people at Hargreaves Lansdowne the UK's biggest investment platform and uh, let's start with some of the tech firms so they've obviously had a pretty great number of years decade more in in expansion and and really growing but some of that confidence is sort of leaching out a little bit at some of these major ones google and microsoft uh for example last night following 
other names like um, Apple and Amazon have, have sort of shown their hand of, of how they're reining back in some of these hiring plans so that they're not quite going in the same manner that they were before. Um, you know, and it's, 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 it's sort of, it's obvious that this cost of living crisis is around the world is sort of affecting everyone, including these big, big tech employers. And they're just taking a, a lot more cautious view of the outlook for demand in the near term. So we're just sort of seeing some of those cutting back on some of those hiring plans. Ocado as well. So this is the, uh, the technology and delivery sort of company. Uh, they released some interim results. And, um, you know, it, it sort of seems the business is in pretty robust shape it had uh it had, it had raised some financing um both the on the share side equity side and also on on the debt side on its bond side as well um so uh you know that was all all pretty good and it showed that its international technology licensing arm was was growing really really fast of these sort of super high tech uh, distribution centers that they have um, but the UK retail division was was sort of declining so Ocado retail which switch partners from Waitrose to, to M&S a little while ago uh, had said that basically sales in the last six months dropped by 8% as lockdown sort of benefits that bump that they kind of got uh, from people doing lots of online orders had sort of faded a bit and consumers were suddenly tightening their belts I suppose around that slightly higher price point that, that M&S is so there was 70% drop in, in, in the cash earnings at that division and it pushed the group into an overall loss for the period of 211 million compared to 28 million pound loss the year before so not so good there differing news though better news from the hospitality sector though there was um there's an upmarket kind of operator called Fuller Smith and Turner um in that sector and they sort of operate in and around London and, and the south and, and they reported really strong sales uh up three percent versus their pre-pandemic levels uh in the last 16 weeks so its CEO Simon Emine was was highlighting that there's a lot of cost pressure sort of affecting hospitality but that you know, a group like that actually had ability to, to sort of cut costs and sort of mitigate some of those. So, um, you know, it, it, it had actually been doing quite well. We also heard uh, Mitchell's and Butler's, one of the UK's largest pub operators. Um, they got lots of brands um, from, you know, sort of Toby Carvery to Miller and Carter Steakhouses, lots, lots of different things. And they were sort of talking of, of longer lasting inflationary impacts on their business which is posing quite a lot of a lot of risk it's quite challenging for um their their business and their most recent trading saw sales just 0.9 percent ahead so it's driven entirely by by food sales okay let's get on to our interview with laura Suter. So I think it's fair to say the major global concern amongst investors right now, you'll be totally unsurprised to hear, is the inflationary picture and the cost of living crisis that it's created. And of course, it's been felt really viscerally by all of us at home. And from the market's perspective as well, the response from central banks in the form of rapidly raising interest rates to try and cool some of this inflation down has the threatening effect of knocking economies into recessions, which is rankling markets at the moment, and it's creating quite a lot of volatility. So just to help us understand all of this and talk through the cost of living crisis, I've got Laura Suter on the pod today. She's AJ Bell's Head of Personal Finance. Laura, welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. So should we start by framing the cost of living crisis first? I mean, why has this come about? Yeah, it's... Um 
tricky one to answer in a couple of words, but I think we can frame it in the fact that post-pandemic, um, there was a lot of demand for stuff. Um, and when I say stuff, I mean just all manner of items. And that really helped drive up prices, which obviously um, leads to higher inflation. A lot of that came from the energy sector as well. There were a series of different factors that meant that energy demand was higher um, and the kind of renewable sources that we'd had previously weren't providing as much energy. So that meant that there was this um, real spike in energy costs. And then on top of that, so we already had that situation. And then on top of that, um, we had the Russia-Ukraine crisis, which has added to the energy problem, but also to food inflation of a number of items that come out of that region that now obviously supply of those is hampered. So you can't pinpoint it necessarily to one sector. What we're seeing is it's energy bills and petrol really going up, but that in turn, um, and also independently, food prices are going up. And just the knock-on impact that that has on different households, but also then businesses um, who then in turn raise their prices those costs means that we're seeing um, prices rising across the board. And we don't think we're at the peak yet for this year. So the expectations are that it's going to go up to 11% later this year in October when the next energy price cap is in, um, comes into place. Um, that will then push up the price of energy prices as the Office for National Statistics um, uses for the inflation basket. And so that's when we're expected to hit that 11% inflation. Okay, I mean, that sounds quite bad. Would you say that this is, you know, I mean, we haven't had inflation like this for a long time. Would you say that this is a this is a fairly difficult economic situation that we're in? I think what we're in is quite a tricky balancing act. When this current inflation started, the phrase transitory was used far too much for my liking. But essentially, people <laughs> thought that it was a bit of a flash in the pan. It was kind of a going to be a, an immediate peak and then fall back down as a response to the world opening up after the pandemic. That's obviously not been the case. Um, and it's now going on for much longer than policymakers and governments and lots of economists initially thought. But how long it goes on for really depends on lots of different factors. It partly depends on things like the Bank of England's response. You talked a bit in your intro about um, Bank of England increasing interest rates. It depends a bit on that, but also on the new prime minister's response. So at the moment, we're partway through that process of finding a new Conservative Party leader who will ultimately be the, the prime minister. Um, and the changes and the economic changes that they make will also have an impact. So a lot of the leadership race so far is focused on handing out tax cuts, um, but they clearly will have an inflationary impact. If you hand out tax cuts and put more people in more money, sorry, in people's back pockets, then that's more money that they've got to spend on things and that has a, an inflationary impact. So a lot of it is a little bit unknown at the moment, but I think the thing that we do know is it's not going away in the next couple of months. Okay, I mean, you know, you talked about central banks there and, and how effective they're going to be. I mean, there has been quite a lot of chat that they were a bit late to the party. Would you would you agree with that at all? I think it was tricky. I think so much of the focus was on the fact that this was just going to be a blip of inflation. And so with that as the backdrop, it would have seemed silly for the Bank of England to increase rates and then potentially drop them down again. And, and UK growth was also so uncertain. And the phrase unprecedented times has been used so much over the past few years, but I think we can allow them perhaps a bit of leeway for the fact that 
Um, it was really unknown how the UK would emerge from the pandemic, what growth would look like and what inflation would look like. That said, they've now switched from a stance of wait and see to a stance of rapidly increasing rates in quick succession. So since December last year, we've had, I think it's five um, interest rate rises and we've got another one um, coming in in the next few weeks. And it's expected that that's going to be a bigger increase um, than previous ones. So we've gone from almost one extreme to the other. Okay, so let's move on to hopefully what's going to be some relief. And we've we've seen um, some cost of living payments basically uh, begin to hit bank accounts as of the 14th of July. So do you want to just explain what these are and who's eligible as well? Yeah, so I think if we start, there's so many different payments for different specific groups. So if I start with the kind of universal payments, so this is what everyone will get regardless of their income or personal circumstances. So everyone will get £400 off their energy bills from October. Um, As long as you have an electricity account, so you're on the main group of electricity, you will get that payment. Um, And it will be kind of staggered across the winter. Um, And the other thing that lots of households will already have seen is a £150 council tax rebate. So that was for people in properties, bands A to D, and that has already been paid out. Um, So that's a kind of universal help. Then there's a tranche of help that is for those on lower income or those that are seen to be particularly in need. So the reference you made to people kind of seeing these payments um, a week or so, hit their bank accounts that is the 650 pounds that's been um given to people on certain benefits so it's being paid in two lump sums the first is 326 pounds and the second is 324 pounds um and that's for people on things like universal credit pension credit um child tax credit income support various different benefits um the next uh of support is £150 for those that are on certain disability benefits. Um, And for those previous to the £650 handout and the £150 handout, you have to have been eligible for those benefits from the 25th of May to get the payment. Um, And then the final uh, payment is going to be £300 top up per household for those who get winter fuel payments. So these are pensioners who get a winter fuel payment each year to help with their energy bills. And the government has added a £300 top up per household this year to account for the fact that energy bills are going to be higher. So it means that some households will get up to £600 in winter fuel payments. Um, And it's probably worth highlighting that there's overlaps between these. So it's not like you fall neatly into one group and not the others. For example, if you're on pension credit, you would get the £650 um, payment, but you would also get the £300 top up to your winter fuel payment. Um, And also if that individual uh, was on certain disability benefits as well, they would get that £150 top up. And that would be on top of the the £400 energy bill rebate and the £150 council tax rebate. So um, there's potentially a lot of support out there for certain individuals. Um, But if you're not in a pensioner household and you're not on any benefits, then you would be getting that energy fuel fuel rebate of the um, £400. Is it enough? Do you think it, it touches the size? I think when it was announced, it was larger than lots of people were expecting. I think everyone was primed to say that Rishi Sunak, the 
chancellor at the time had, had not done enough, but actually it went a lot further than people thought, um, particularly with the help for those on benefits, because previous measures that have been announced that have kind of been scrapped a bit now were kind of universal measures. They weren't targeted at those on lower incomes and there wasn't any specific support for pensioners either who were seen to be, um, I mean, not seen to be, they are particularly affected by this cost of living crisis because a larger proportion of their income goes on energy bills and food. So I think the view at the time was that he'd gone further than many expected and actually that's a decent amount of support for households. That doesn't detract from the fact that it's not enough to cover the increases in costs that we're seeing. If you look at um, energy bills alone, even if you add together all of those um, payments and say that you're entitled to all of them, that probably um, is slightly slightly over what the energy bill increase is. But then when you think about the fact that we've got um, price rises across the board elsewhere, it's not going to be enough. But the government can't pay to cover everyone's cost of living increases. And obviously, the money has to come from somewhere. I think the, um, the thing that I would flag is that I think the government kept a bit in their back pocket in terms of when we finally knew what the exact um, energy price cap was going to be set at in October and we knew what energy bills were going to increase by, I think there's a bit of an expectation that the government might react to then that at that point and either offer more help for low-income families or potentially increase that £400 energy bill rebate that everyone's getting. Mm. Well, and one of the things that's slightly exacerbating this is, you know, we saw in the 2021 budget that you mentioned the Chancellor Rishi Sunak there. I mean, he announced that he was freezing income tax bans. And because of inflation, many of us have been pushed into higher bans. I mean, how much of an impact is this having? It's a it's a dramatic impact, but it's also a very sneaky one because lots of people don't really realise the impact that it is having on how much tax that they're paying. So we had some figures out, um, I think last week or the week before, talking about the fact that this year there's going to be an almost 50% increase in the number of people that fall into the additional rate taxpayer Gosh. category, so they're 45% banned. Um, and there's going to be a 44% increase in the number of people that are higher rate taxpayers, so paying that 40 percent income tax rate um so there's a dramatic increase and, and like you say that's because usually these bans would increase with inflation when you have a period of high inflation there would have been bigger than usual increases in these bans to account for that and what we're seeing at the moment is there's a bit of a kind of war for talent and it's a very candidates market in um, in the jobs market. So lots of people are getting pay rises, but that's then nudging them into a higher tax band. And there's all sorts of knock-on effects to that. Um, we've had recently, the government has promised or pledged to reduce the basic rate of income tax down to 19% from 20%. Um, and there's been talks of bringing that increase forward because it's not due to come in for a couple of years. But even if you did that, that doesn't counteract the additional tax that uh, lots of people are facing because of these frozen bans. So um, to put some figures around it, someone on £50,000 a year will still see about a £6,000 increase in their tax bill across the next five years, so across that period, even if that 19% um, rate of income tax is brought in because they won't have seen those tax bans increase and so more of their income is taxed at a higher rate. 
Mm. That's if they stick with it, of course, because I noticed in the debate there was a, you know, there was talk about how this this um, policy might change, um, and they may start to rise. I mean, is there anything is there anything else that you think the government could be doing to help with the cost of living crisis? We probably don't have like six hours for me to lay out my government policy, <laughs> but I'll, so I'll stick to a few. Um, I think that they could do more to help low-income families, particularly with energy bills later this year when we know what the price cap's going to be. Um, there's various estimates out there, but it's estimated that the um, average energy bill is going to go up to £3,250 a year from October. That's a, a massive amount of money for someone who's living on the state pension, for example, or on certain benefits. As a proportion of their income, that is... Um, humongous and so I think the government has announced that support and I do acknowledge that that, that is good um, however I think that they could go a bit further for those that are really struggling um, we only have to look at figures around kind of food bank usage and the fact that local councils are now setting up warm banks which is places where people can go in the winter when it's cold to be warm if they can't afford to heat their own homes I think those examples really highlight that there's still going to be lots of people struggling um, I think another area where they could do more is actually publicizing some of the really good policy that they have. So we've seen a lot of focus recently on things like childcare costs increasing and that being a real crunch point for families and for parents who are working. And what we've seen there is childcare costs have risen because they've been hit by the same rising costs as all of us. Their energy bills have increased, food bills have increased. Um, and the government actually has some really good support on offer for families to help with childcare costs. But it's chronically underclaimed because people don't understand the system. They don't understand that they're eligible. Um, some of these things, things like tax-free childcare have really confusing names that don't actually state what they do on the tin. And so, I mean, I welcome the innovation that a lot of the um, Tory party leadership debate is creating around tax cuts. But um, for me, a vote winner would just be saying, let's just work with the system we've got, but actually publicise it directly to the people that can benefit from it. Things like tax-free childcare, that's £2,000 per child you can get towards the help of your childcare. Um, that's a massive increase when you compare it to kind of some of the handouts that the government's offering specifically for the cost of living crisis. And, and that is just waiting to be claimed there, but just not publicised. I just want to move on to talk a little bit about savers so obviously i mentioned that interest rates have been have been shooting up as uh, as the bank of england are, are moving to tackle inflation um and for you know it's quite a quite a nice change really for a, a long time over a decade we've had interest rates that have been rock bottom and for savers that's just meant that their their savings have been going nowhere is, is this are these r rising interest rates doing much for savers yeah they are definitely um savings rates on average, have gone up a lot since we saw the Bank of England first start to move in December. Um, we've had quite a bit more competition in the best buy tables, which is really good for savers, um, particularly on fixed rate accounts. We've seen a lot of competition and rates rising there. If you're the average saver whose money is sitting in an old savings account or in their current account, you're not going to have seen any difference. Um, banks aren't increasing their rates on kind of what they would class as these bit more dormant accounts. But if you're willing to shop around a bit and um, search out better rates, then you can definitely get more for your money. My caveat would be that the 
the rates still aren't anywhere near what inflation are. And so what we've got at the moment is I think the top rate easy access account is about one and a half percent, just over that, um, that um, will pay that out. But then when you frame that with the fact that inflation is at nine percent, there's still quite a gulf between kind of the real term spending power of your money and, and what you're getting from cash savings. But that's not to do down the fact that actually, yeah, savings rates have really improved, which is so good for those people that have got a decent amount of money in cash and have been getting basically nothing on their savings for the past few years. But I suppose, I mean, is the cost of living crisis meant that we've, we've got no cash to put away or are Brits still are still saving their cash? Yeah, it's slightly unfortunate timing that just at the point that you can get a return on your cash, you're actually having to use it to pay all of your bills. Mm. Um, I think what we're seeing is is basically a bit of a divided nation. So there are those people that financially came out of the pandemic pretty well. They um, didn't get furloughed. They could do their job from home. They saw that they could save lots of money by not going out or um, not going on holidays, for example. And actually, the pandemic, whilst it may have been terrible for all other reasons, financially was quite a boost to a lot of households. Um, And then if they are not in the category of just about managing now, if they can stomach some of these cost of living increases, they're still able to save money. Um, Contrast to that, we have the people that were furloughed um, or lost their job during the pandemic had to already dip into their savings. um, And they came out of the pandemic in a more precarious financial position and now don't have that cushion to kind of stomach those cost of living increases or they've had to dip in and into their savings um, to pay for those bill increases. So I think what we've got is a bit of a divided nation. And when we look at Bank of England figures, what we see is that lots of people are still saving cash and putting money away in their cash accounts. Um, but also lots of people are taking on more and more debt and letting their credit card balances build up, for example. Okay. So if you are one of, uh, I suppose, the luckier ones who are managing to put some savings away, what do you think about where it should go? Because, you know, I've, I've sort of, you know, there's there's risks in the market at the moment. There's, there's um, you know, a recession being priced in, whether or not it is fully priced in uh, is still a question mark. So do you think, you know, if you're considering where to put your money, is, is there more risk in savings because of this negative real interest rate that you kind of described where the rate that you're getting for your savings is below the rate of inflation? Or do you think the stock markets is a kind of uh, a less risky option? I guess they both have risk, but they're, they're different risks. So with cash, um, you're losing money in real terms, that gulf between current inflation and what you can, the interest rates you can get on your savings. That's that's not going to change anytime soon. I mean, interest rates might rise slightly, but so would inflation. Um, so that's kind of baked in. You know that that's going to happen, but equally, you're not going to see your savings pop plummet in value overnight um investing has been a a tricky market of late i would say um as you're well aware and so Mm. there are different risks there there's there's risks of um recession like you say and the knock-on impact that that has on companies now some of that is priced in already um we're probably in a bit of a better place than we were a few months ago but Clearly, you still don't know the individual impact that that's going to have on the companies that you're investing in. Um, but if you're in it for the long term, you know you can ride that out. You're, you know you've got a diversified portfolio. Um, then that's a risk that you might feel comfortable taking. So um, both risky but different risks, I would say. 
I mean, is it how, 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 just out of interest as a reminder, really, for listeners, what would you say is the minimum time frame if you're looking at investing in the stock markets? So we always use five years as our, our minimum. We say that if you want the money in the next five years, then investing probably isn't the right place for you. Now, there are certain markets in the past where actually that would have been fine. They were gradually rising markets. They weren't too big a shock. And you could have invested for a shorter period of time, seen your money grow by more than cash and, and managed to exit the market at the right point. But timing those markets is very tricky. And it's something that not even the professionals get right all the time. So um, we use a rule of thumb of, of five years or longer to invest. If you know that you need that money in the next five years, then you're probably better off sticking to cash. Um, However, that is a personal decision. And with inflation as high as it is and cash rates still not very high, um, that might change the kind of equation for some people and tilt it towards thinking, okay, um, investing is maybe worth it compared to losing a guarantee kind of seven or eight percent a year in terms of the spending power of my money in cash. Okay, interesting. So five years is a minimum. And that's and that's just so that you're 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 less likely to have experienced a loss over that period of time because of the natural sort of flows of markets and, and the cycles that they tend to go through. Yeah, it's based on kind of looking at historic market data. Um, yeah, you're less likely to have seen a loss in, in that period and, and you can um you're not going to have seen a dramatic fall in value. When we when we talk about it a lot of the time, it's talking about for younger people's with their house deposit um and yeah. the last thing that you would want is the day you come to withdraw that money there being a big um stock market fall and you actually can't afford the property that you want um so some of it is also framing it in terms of what you need the money for and how risky it would be if that um that investment pot fell in value on a certain day Sure. And of course, you I mean, you might have multiple goals with your portfolio and some are longer than others. And so you've just got to kind of um, divvy up the portfolio accordingly in terms of risk, depending on on, you know, the time frames that you have for those mm -hmm. financial goals. Um, OK. And then uh, finally, I mean, I just it's it's a it's an interesting one. This, so I've, I've, you know, I've got some money. I'm, in, I'm investing in the stock market, but I'm I'm very aware of the fact that inflation is sort of bearing down on everyone in, and and on the economy and on companies as well are there certain assets that you think are, are better than others if you're thinking about investing without inflation in your risk in your mind yeah certainly i think um let me run through a few so property tends to be good in a higher inflation market a lot of um property will have um, inflation linked increases to rent, particularly commercial property. Um, they have regular rent reviews, which means the ability to increase those um, rents. Um, but also as an asset class, generally, it um, tends to rise in value with inflation um, rather than behind it. Um, another area that we tend to think of in these times is gold. Uh, that tends to, over, over the longer term, has produced kind of inflation beating returns. Um, another area would be inflate in, sorry, not inflation. Another area would be infrastructure. So a lot of infrastructure projects have, um, inflationary increases kind of baked into them, which means that they do well in a higher inflation, um, environment. And then also, I think you can look at it on a company specific level. So there's certain companies or brands that 
have enough brand power to be able to bring in higher price rises and people will still buy them, or at least they won't see a dramatic drop off in, in buyer numbers. Um, so these are companies that have decent brand strength in the market and can bring in higher price rises and, and, and people will still stick with that product. Um, the caveat to all of that is, is that um, a lot of those markets have kind of been identified already and we've seen some increase in values in them so for example infrastructure there's a lot of investment trusts that focus on that infrastructure area but they've also seen kind of um, a lot of demand for them and the share prices of those have risen so um, those are all good areas and the same with um, with company specific stuff companies have been identified already that that would be good in an inflationary environment um, and so some of that increase might already be baked into the share price so um, they're good areas to look at but you kind of then have to be choosy when you're drilling down into them to make sure that there's still room for for higher returns there oh, well i mean so just on the company side of things i mean you say so some of these stronger brands with pricing power and things like that but you're not going to find that on the tin of a fund you know on, on its label so is there a certain type of strategy where that those types of companies might be included in those funds and other well maybe conversely you know maybe one to avoid as well yeah so i think um and that's that's where the value of kind of paying for a fund manager rather than stock picking yourself really comes into play because they can obviously spend a lot more time doing that analysis of companies where historically it's shown that they can increase their prices without too much drop off or the kind of market expectations or research shows that um, people will be willing to stomach higher costs in those areas. Um, I think another area, if we're looking at funds specifically, is there's a whole group of funds called capital preservation funds. Um, and these are funds that are really focused on doing well in a downturn, um, doing well in kind of recessionary environments. They're focused on protecting your money. So in booming times in the stock market, they won't deliver as high return as a pure stock market fund. But in um, kind of more depressed times and more volatile times in the market, they really work hard to invest in lots of different assets and preserve the value of your money and, and even grow it um, during difficult times. So one example would be rougher investment trust. Um, and and these funds kind of invest in a mixture of gold, um, of cash as well, of bonds, but also invest in the stock market. And they have big flexibility to increase and reduce their allocations to different asset classes, depending on the market environment. So if you want to kind of outsource the decision, you're a bit more wary and you want something that's going to protect your money, but hopefully still grow it over the longer term. Um, then those kind of capital preservation funds would be a good area to look to. Okay, interesting. I like uh, just just going to pick up on gold as well. Um, I mean, this is a sort of classic inflation hedge. Um, what are your thoughts towards the digital gold that is cryptocurrencies? So I'm of the view that cryptocurrency is an interesting area. It's an interesting area to play in, um, but I don't class it as an investment. Um, for me, an investment is something that has a kind of underlying asset you can um, determine in what market conditions it's going to rise and fall um, that's not to say it can't surprise you at times but I think crypto is a fun area to play in but I don't think it has a place 
in the core of your portfolio. If we look at the volatility of it as an asset class, it's really risky. Um, it's in these big leaps and then falls in price. If we compared that to something in the more, I guess, kind of quote unquote conventional investment market, um, something that displayed that level of kind of volatility and risk wouldn't be something that we would be recommending to everyday DIY investors who are putting a small amount in the market. So I think it's interesting, by all means, have an interest in it, have some money into it, in it, but it isn't a place for the bulk of your portfolio if you're the kind of average um, DIY investor who's not kind of supremely wealthy. Laura Sita, thank you very much. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, a very big thank you once again to Laura Souter. I thought that was a really comprehensive look at the cost of living crisis. Please uh, send me an email, marcus at stepstoinvesting.com if you've, if you've got any questions around that. Next week, we're going to be speaking to a chap from Chelsea Financial Services. He's a bit of a, an investing expert. So we're going to be having a good look at what's been going on in markets and uh, and then also seeing where he thinks there's some opportunities across the different corners of the market and perhaps even might be able to get some some fun tips from him too so so lots to look forward to there in a fortnight until next time goodbye